0: what we did uh, on the first, on the introduction, is discuss the inter-testament period, the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and in discussing it we noted that uh, what we refer to as the apocrypha books that's in the Catholic Bible and most uh, Christians have not read really it was read by the early Christians. In other words that They didn't recognize it as inspired, but they did read it. It was part, it was part, it was actually copied and translated as part of the Bibles that they had. And although that material is not inspired, and some of it is even fictitious, a lot of it is very good and accurate history. And a lot of what we know between the Old and New Testament comes from these Hippocrypha books. And a lot of times when we uh, criticize some for having it, that uh, we don't always know what we're saying about them, because many times those that use it do not accept it as inspired, but use it just like we would the works of Josephus as, as history. First Maccabees in particular, you know, has good history of that period of time. Well, it's in those books and other works that we learn about some of the things that you come in contact with in the Gospels that you have no background for in the Old Testament. For example, in the Old Testament, you don't read about the synagogue. And you don't read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the Essenes and the Zealots and yet you run into every bit of this as you start the New Testament with the assumption that you already know what's going on and so you just simply have to read it and try to figure out what's going on. But in these books and all and in the history before that we actually can see how these things got started. And what we noted in in the those intertestament testament period is the providence of God was such that if you were going to pick a period of time uh, for Jesus to come in all the history of the world, the recorded history, you could not have picked a better time. Now that sounds unusual in today with television and the population being so much bigger and all. you think, well, man, if, if he was going to come, now would be the time we get all this on TV and have it for everybody. But you really could not have picked a better time in all of history for God to do what he wanted to do through Christ than there at that time. At the uh, time that Jesus came, a couple of things had happened that was very important. And one is that Alexander the Great had conquered the civilized world. And he had spread the Greek language through all of these countries. And so we have all these individual countries who have their individual languages but yet they also have the Greek language. And so all educated people of Paul's day in the Roman world would have spoke the Greek language. And so it became the absolute perfect language of that day to put the New Testament into. Also, the very nature of the Greek language, the Greeks put tremendous emphasis on philosophy. And when we think of philosophers today, the first thing that pops in our mind we're reading that area is, is, is ancient Greece. Because of their emphasis, just like in our society today, we put emphasis on science. The end result is that we have a language that is specialized in the direction of science. That we have invented all kinds of words to deal with all, every minute, physical, empirical thing and in the realm of science. In their language, because philosophy was especially, the Greek had developed a vocabulary to express spiritual and abstract concepts like for example we've studied before that we read in our English translation the word love and yet the word love is um, a rendering of at least two different words agape and phileo in the New Testament either one of them are more precise than love and each of them are different and our word love just in all honesty does not accurately express agape and phileo we try to get both meanings into one word and we run, we run into problems with some of the commands of Jesus and some things he expects of us. So I'm saying it was, it was the absolute perfect language to put the New Testament into Alright something else happened and that is that uh, Rome after conquering Greece now controls the entire civilized world of that day. The entire the Roman Empire. And what this means is that by the time Jesus comes on the scene the world, the civilized world, is in a period of peace. And this is important. And the reason it's in a period of peace is because Rome actually controlled the entire, the entire civilized known world of that day. They dominated, they, they controlled. And another thing it meant is that if you were a Roman citizen, you could travel without a passport anywhere you wanted to. Uh, Paul, in another age, could not have done what he did in the first century. I mean even today, you just can't hop from one country to the other at will and go in and start preaching the gospel. We today, when we think in terms of going to Saudi Arabia or behind the Iron Curtain or to China, uh, to certain places in Africa, certain places in South America, the first thing we find out is that we've got problems because some of those governments are hostile towards Christianity. Sometimes it's against the law to take the Bible in and to circulate it. Sometimes it's against the law to have worship services or to preach. And we have the police force of that country backing up their laws. With Rome controlling the civilized world, Rome was favorable towards religions. And what I mean by that is, Rome had no religion enforced on anybody. And it allowed every country it conquered to practice their religion and Rome could have cared less about the spread of religion. So the end result is it created an atmosphere Where Christianity could go throughout the known world of that day. Well, not only could it go, but it went with the protection of Rome. Uh, For example, what would have happened to Christianity had Rome not have conquered Israel before Jesus came? Think about that. If we know the history, Rome has conquered Israel. And the Jews think that's terrible. And they're a conquered people, and they're wanting a Messiah to deliver them from Rome. It's the greatest thing so far as Christianity is concerned because the Jews tried to kill Jesus during his earthly ministry. They finally succeeded in executing him and then beginning with Pentecost and the spread of the gospel, the Jewish nation did everything under their power. I'm talking about the religious leaders of that day, did everything under their power to stamp out Christianity and Christianity thrived because, despite that, a big part of that, the biggest part maybe was because of the protection of the Roman government and so for example Paul who writes half the New Testament travels all over the place with the gospel establishes churches in all these Gentile cities all during the time he's doing this the Jews are trying to take his life. At one time forty Jews even bound themselves under an oath that they wouldn't eat until they took his life. But Paul had the protection of the Roman government and when Rome arrested Paul it wasn't for doing anything wrong it was because the Jews were trying to kill him it was actually a protection for Paul And so he had the protection of the Roman government all during his travels, and when he finally got to Rome, Rome is the chief city in the world. I don't even know if we can fully appreciate today the importance of the city of Rome in the first century, because today we do not have a single city in the world that would be comparable to Rome of the first century. We've got like New York and Los Angeles in our country and russia has moscow well if you can just think of new york and los angeles and moscow and london and berlin and all of them wrapped into one you've got rome of the first century everything all roads lead to rome Uh, everything revolves around rome paul's a roman citizen and so paul goes to rome and spends a couple of years there in his own rented house with a roman guard he's supposed to be in prison But what it amounts to is a Roman guard is watching and guarding Paul. They they are his bodyguards, just like our president has bodyguards, while Paul teaches everybody that will come to him. And so Christianity uh, takes off at a time when the Greek language is spread, the Greek culture is spread. Not only this, uh, Rome controls the entire civilized world at this day, and actually forms a protective influence for Christianity. So from God's standpoint, providentially, although the Jews couldn't understand it, and, and by the way, it, it can help us when it comes to maybe some things we might ever complain about. If you had been a devout man of God as a Jew in that day, you would have thought it was terrible that Rome had conquered Israel. And yet from God's standpoint, he was great because he couldn't do what he wanted to do without Rome the control of Israel. And he had it set up just the way he wants it. Alright, now, not only has that happened, but between 250 and 280 A.D., not A.D., B.C., the Hebrew scriptures are translated into the Greek Septuagint, into the Greek language. Alright, this is the language, this will be the Bible of the early church. And at the time that Jesus comes, that most of the synagogues would have had a copy of the Greek Septuagint and it, it gave a bigger percentage of the world excess. At first it was only in the Hebrew. That limited to the Jews. I mean, who in the world is gonna take the time to learn Hebrew except a devout Jew? And so now we put it in the Greek, and it's been in the Greek for over 200 years by the time Jesus comes. So all of these prophecies about a Messiah, and the law of Moses, and all these types and shadows of the Messiah are in the language that is now worldwide. And then only this, something else has happened. God has, over the years, in punishing Israel, allowed countries like Babylon and Assyria to conquer them, and they have scattered the Jews all over the civilized world. Well, the end result was that the Jew is scattered all over. Two things happen, or more, um, two that I'm going to mention, a whole lot of things happen. Number one, every place the Jew went, he took the knowledge of a, of a coming Messiah, and a coming kingdom, and a prince of peace. It's sort of like the American GI in World War II. We, we can only guess at the hundreds of congregations of the church that have been started in Japan, and Okinawa, and Guam, and in Vietnam, and various other places in the South Pacific, and other areas, because that when the American GI went, he took his religion with him, and congregations were established. In fact, Barbara and I knew a man that, uh, uh, a master, black master sergeant in uh, Kentucky that preached for the congregation where my parents went to, that, in vietnam while he was there he helped to establish he was a sergeant over there during wartime and helped establish several congregations of the church when i was in okinawa the church had been established there primarily by american GIs that had set up a congregation in that area so in the same vein the jew took that knowledge wherever he went so much so that in the writings of other people uh, even in the writings of, of confucius for example of the the chinese proverbs and all there, there is these statements about this man from the West that was supposed to come. You know, this, this great prophet, this great Messiah that was supposed to come to the world. So every, everybody's looking for something. All right, another thing that Jew did is that the temple had been destroyed. And with the temple destroyed, the Jew, of course, his whole worship centered around the temple. But, but in his captivity, the Jew wanted a place to study the Bible. To study, the, of course, for them the, what we call the Old Testament Scriptures and to worship God and to pray, even though the temple was destroyed. And so what the Jew did, he built these buildings that we call synagogues. The New Testament church evolved from the synagogue. Uh, Some of these thoughts that we think of as original in the New Testament actually evolved out of the Jewish synagogue. Our pattern of worship, for example, in the church came out of the Jewish synagogue. Uh, And and so the, the, the concept of elders and deacons and the autonomy and and, and meeting for Bible study and prayer and singing and whatnot goes back to the Jewish synagogue. So these synagogues were built all over. Well, see what is going to happen. Uh, these synagogues think of them as Jewish churches. And the buildings are there. They're built all over the world the civilized world, the Roman world. Well, what that means is that when Christianity takes off, beginning of Pentecost, it's like already having, now when we go to say, for example, places in Africa, we call a tribe together with a bale or something and we do the best we can. We do the best we can in India, out on the streets and in houses and things like that. But can you imagine going and you've already got church buildings all over the place. So every time you go into a city, just like when you go through the book of Acts, what does Paul do? He goes to the synagogue. And so at the synagogue, you already have religious people meeting who have been studying the prophecies about a Messiah to come. And so these synagogues then have been scattered all over the Jewish world of that day, all all over the Roman-controlled world. And they will make the perfect vehicle to spread Christianity. So everything about it was ideal. And then again, this period of peace from beginning with 27 B.C. to about 90 A.D., We have the longest period of recorded peace the world has ever known. I mean, there was no nations warring or anything of that nature because Rome just simply controlled the civilized world at that point. That's the time when Jesus comes on the scene. All right, now, the record of Jesus, our belief as Christians, centers around one person, and that's Jesus. We we are the only religion that has ever existed uh, that centers around a person entirely. The law of Moses centered around a law, not Moses, it's centered around a law. But Christianity revolves around a person and it's the, the concept of God incarnate, God in the flesh, God dying for humanity, God dying, God being buried and God raised is unique to Christianity. Now, there will be other religions after Christianity that will use these concepts. Now, the reason I emphasize uniqueness is because that uh, one of the things that somebody would do if they wanted to falsify the Christian claim is to go back and show how that every single concept they believed evolved from the culture they lived in, and they simply took it a step further. And, of course, this is what what, uh, a historian a sociologist, or someone uh, looking at it from strictly a a humanist perspective, that's what they would try to do. They would try to show it evolved out of that culture. But those things I mentioned are absolutely unique to Christianity and you only find them in other religions after Christianity and what happens is Christianity is so successful that some of these other groups begin to buy into some of the concepts and we find those concepts being written, for example, uh, in the Muslim religion the Muslim religion bought into the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And you can show how that the, the Muslims actually evolve out of a belief structure where they take what they believe out of both the Old and the New Testament and then try to pull it together with Muhammad being the one pulled together. But the idea of one God and, and the, the various other ideas that are propagated within the Muslim religion actually come out of contact with both Christians and Jews and you can actually see the evolution of thought in their system. There's nothing unique to it. Uh, Not only there are a lot of falsehoods, there's nothing unique to it, nothing that's new about the religion itself. If it revolves around Christ, then from the Christian standpoint, absolutely the most important thing that you and I can study is the person of Christ. Christianity stands or falls on the deity of Jesus. It stands or falls then, as far as his deity, the death, burial, and resurrection. Alright, the, there are other little statements that you can read about Jesus in history. I can read from Tacitus, for example, that, uh, that Jesus was executed during the time of Pontius Pilate. I can read from Josephus about Jesus living and establishing a religion and about people believing that he performed miracles and things like that. I can read from other historical works the impact of events. I can read from history the persecution of Christians, and how Nero persecuted Christians, and how Domitian persecuted Christians. I can read all of that. There is only four sources that you can read anything about the personality of Christ and the actual details of his life and all, and that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and so even a, an infidel or an atheist or whoever he is if he ever wants to know, well, I don't care how much he believes or he doesn't believe if he wants to know anything about this person that, that is believed in the only place he can get his information is Matthew, Mark, Luke and John it's there, it's condensed right in those four books consequently since Christianity has been the most influential force to ever hit the world And since Jesus, even admittedly by scholars who are not Christian, is the most influential person that ever lived, I mean, after all, this is 1989 A.D., the Latin, the A.D., being the abbreviation of the Latin word that means the year of our Lord, the year of his birth. And so even though the calendar may have been a few years off, which it was, the fact remains, all of the world today thinks of time, before and after the birth of Christ. And so the impact is there. Christianity is really the only worldwide religion. Try to think of another one. The Muslims are limited primarily to the, to the Middle East. Wherever they have spread, they have spread by force. Without force they don't spread anywhere. They have gone in and conquered and, and spread by force. And they're primarily limited there. And we've got some blacks in this country that have bought into it. Not so much because it's a, it's a verifiable entity that has been proven to them. But because they have been mistreated in this country, and it was maybe a form of rebellion against the whites in this country to grab another religion. And so they bought they bought into it. At least I'm saying that about all that have bought into the Muslim religion in this country is a very small percentage of the blacks, and it actually serves as a rebellion against the Christianity and a system that has been had been in their past very unpleasant to them. So it's the only worldwide religion. <clears throat> Alright, now if that is so, he's the most influential person that's ever lived, and even the atheist says that's right, I don't believe anybody was. And if Christianity is the only worldwide religion, every place it's went, it's went with success. And the interesting thing is, it doesn't conquer with a sword, it just conquers with, with a message. And it's and it spread that way. Then we can also appreciate how what has happened now. For years, Christians, you know, believed in the inspiration of the Bible, and they took this message, and they used the prophecies, and they used the witness of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they spread the Christian faith. With the age of rationalization, and with the scientific method of reasoning that hit the world in the last couple of centuries, there began an investigation of the Bible in a different way than it had ever been investigated. For example, in the first harmony of the Gospels that we have is written about 150 A.D., where a Christian harmonizes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now we begin to see infidels and atheists deal with the harmony of the Gospels, and they use the scientific method of reasoning, and they use a different they use a a logic that rather than biased in favor is biased against. So the end result has been that. In the last few hundred years, there has been more material, more books written about the four Gospels than all other books that have ever been written anywhere at any time. You can find more material, interesting, not not just by believers. You find more material, obviously, by believers, but I'm saying that unbelievers have written more material about the Gospels than they have anything else. There is no other religion that has is now and has been inspected with such a fine-tooth comb as as the four Gospels. Christianity, and of course when you say Christianity, you're going to zero in primarily on the four Gospels to start. All right, now, here's what has happened. In our country, we are aware of the fact that we are becoming less religious as a nation. There's no question. Our laws have become... We are less God-centered. Uh, we have organizations like the ACLU, the heading on the paper today, ACLU in the church, that believes that in that phrases like in God we trust ought to be wiped away and that uh, that the statement one nation under God that under God needs to be taken out. That his work to get every uh, thing pertaining to God or religion out of the school system and out of the and out of the, the government or in, in any form. They're not the old. They're just one organization. There are others that are fighting in a very aggressive way. These books have been res- the books that have been responsible for this. Really, go back in the last century to the commentaries written by skeptics of the Gospels and of the Bible, and so we've had several generations go to state colleges where they have studied the information exposing things about the Gospels. For example, in years past, individuals would have studied the harmony of the Gospels, or studied Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They began to study in state institutions the contradictions in the Bible. The contradictions in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, who copied off who? Uh, here, this, this was copied, and this was copied, and this was copied, this wasn't copied. You can look at all the, the contradictions in it. How can anybody believe this? Uh, miracles have been attacked. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, who believed in God, a deist. Uh, Jefferson translated the Bible, especially translated the entire New Testament, and in translating it, he left out the miracles. And he believed that it, he believed that the teaching was good and moral, and it was good for people to study. But the miracles were false and had been written in. Well, Jefferson didn't come up with that on his own. He had been influenced by some of the writing that we've talked about. The man that is spoke of here as president of the ACLU in Chattanooga, was at one time an ordained elder in the Presbyterian church. He's no longer in the Presbyterian church, nor any Christian church. He would not claim to be a believer in Jesus. He's a well-educated man. As a result of his contact with this kind of information, pointing out the contradictions in the Bible, how certain thought patterns evolved and there was nothing unique there at all Uh, how that uh miracles were written into it and things of this nature he reached the point where he became an unbeliever so far as the deity in other words jesus would be to him a good man as we as we call people good that live but he would not believe in the miracles definitely not in the resurrection or anything of that nature All right. Consequently, now what's happening, and it's been happening for several years. This is the world of those people that have gone through a line of study where they have investigated that. They're editors of papers. They write the textbooks for the schools. They're on the Supreme Court. They're in our Congress. They're in very important offices all over all over the country. And this has caused a change in the laws and things. that are happening in our society now while all of this has been happening to undermine the Bible Christians have set back and I know when I started to preach on this years back the most frustrating thing to me is that most Christians were not aware enough of what's going on to even want to hear it and burden their mind with it. Christians have continued to preach in this generation the way they preached a hundred years ago and that is just get up and say the Bible says so and so The Bible says this, and the Bible says that, and then we wonder why everybody doesn't just believe it. Well, that's great if the person you're talking to believes the Bible. And so, in in my young years, and in the young years of you all, we're all like right up on this mountain. In fact, on this mountain, in rural areas like this, you can still do it. In Grundy County, you can still get up and make believers by just saying that the Bible says such and such. Because they, they may not know what it says, but they believe, for whatever reason, you know, they believe it's inspired. And so if you say the Bible says so and so, and you can prove them that, then then you've got a valid valid point. On the day of Pentecost, the sermon that Peter preached and converted 3,000 Jews would not have converted 3,000 Gentiles. He quoted Old Testament prophecies and showed how Jesus fulfilled them. That was powerful to a Jew that believed the prophecies and was aware of these things to a Gentile who was not studied in those prophecies, he would have still been sitting there shaking his head. You see, it would have had to have been the miracle, it would have had to have been some other teaching about the prophecies, There would have been, it had to have been more groundwork that was laid for, for that individual. Okay, today, we still are, in our writing, in our teaching, presenting the material that way, but the end result is, like for example, I'll use the group that I've been affiliated with, the, the Churches of Christ, they're stagnant. Uh, for a period of time they were growing. Uh, they're absolutely stagnant now. There, there's not enough growth to even talk about. Oh, I mean, they know they baptize their kids and somebody marries and they baptize a mate and things like that. And I'm talking about in the United States now. But as many as they convert, they lose. And it, it, it's a stagnant organization. And so are most of the other groups. And some of the groups that are growing among the Christian some of the fundamentalist Christian groups are growing, are not growing by going out here and converting atheists and unbelievers, they're proselyting. Like, here you've got uh, this holiness group that converts somebody out of the Catholic Church. And they say, we've converted somebody. Well, see, he already believed in God. He already believed in Jesus. And are like uh, a church, of somebody else in the Church of Christ, you see, we'll say, we will say, we converted 50 people. We went out here and had a gospel meeting and converted 50 people. Well, some of them come out of the Baptist Church. Some of them come out of the Methodist Church. Some of them come out of the Presbyterian Church or the Church of God will go out here and say, hey we, we converted 30 people this week. Some of them come out of the Church of Christ, some of them come out of the Baptist Church and all. But if you really think about it, and if you're familiar with what's going on in all the churches and all, that there's nobody reaching out, the atheists are not being converted, and the infidels not being converted, and the skeptics are not being converted. I'm talking about in, in any kind of number, I'm not talking about that exceptional individual they're not being reached they are growing in number while we talk with one another and argue back and forth on particular doctrines we you know we believe in the deity of Jesus and the inspiration of the bible and while we fight back and forth on individual things and argue you know and, and proselyte one to the other the atheist is winning the day he's he's winning the day in the school system and he's he's winning the day in the newspapers he's winning the day in our government and so we've got laws like for example the the, the abortion law that could not have existed in this country at one time and now it's, it's totally legal and accepted and the majority of our population fully endorses uh... That, that concept right now this guy here in giving the values of the ACLU in uh... talking about their contending for right uh... uh free speech he gives an example he says taking this view to the extreme even if you had a cookie, incestuous family that made a videotape involving parents and children performing sex acts together, the ACLU would not restrict their right to sell that videotape. Now, that's not what somebody's saying about what the ACLU believes. That is the president of the ACLU in Chattanooga He's saying you don't have the result, he, he is totally against. Hindering the sale or promotion of pornography in any way or anything of that nature. You don't have total freedom of speech Okay, they are are becoming more and more effective the man who ran for president one of the men that ran for president this year was a card-carrying member of the ACLU and a believer of of those particular principles and They are becoming more numerous all the time and and the point is that our society is being affected there and part of the problem is that Christians are continuing to look at Christianity in the same way that they've always looked at it, and we're not doing our homework. Now, what we're going to do in our, in our study, that we're starting tonight, and that is we're going to look at the Gospels from the standpoint of examining the arguments that the atheists and infidels have posed against it. What do they mean when they talk about the contradictions in the Gospel? Sometimes Christians, in defending it, have have in not knowing and understanding it themselves, have made the Bible say things that it doesn't say. For example, in some of our harmonies of the gospel, we have did some things that uh, that are absurd to a thinking person that's an unbeliever. For example, when you read about Peter's denying Jesus before you know his uh, crucifixion, if you read the various accounts as they record what Peter said. They don't all record exactly the same thing. So one harmony of the gospel has got Peter denying six different times in order to take all this into consideration. He said, if you just have three, you've got contradiction. And, of course, the infidels have pointed this out. So he says what he really did is deny it six different times. And he does this to get a harmony there. But the problem is he then flies right in the face of Jesus' statement that before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. But he's got him there doing it six times. And we have worked out all kinds of explanations to try and show why that when you read this in Mark, it's worded different than you read it in Matthew. And there's no question that when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke that you can read the same conversation in different words there. You can read the same parable and it'll be said in just a little bit different way. Well then you you put yourself in the position of a young person going to college and a skeptic uh, is showing that and saying, well now which way did Jesus say it? For example, look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Read that same sermon in Luke the sixth chapter. Why does Matthew say blessed are the poor in spirit and Luke says blessed are the poor? Why when they get down to the, uh, the wise, the, the two people that build their houses, the one of them's using sand and the other ones talking about building a house on solid ground, no, ground, no mention of sand whatsoever. You know Why the, why the differences on, on little things like that? Why does one of them record that both of the thieves were uh, were berailing Jesus and the other one has one thief berailing him and the other one being saved? And why does one have a plurality of demons speaking and another one just has one there? Why in the in going to the, uh, the after his resurrection, there the empty tomb, why does one have an angel, somebody else have a, a young man somebody else has a plurality of woman, somebody has one woman seeing or being talked to first, why the, the differences uh, in those things? And there are other statements there why the prophecies quoted in the way they are, they quote Isaiah and you turn back there and sometimes uh, it's not word for word the way you read it there in Isaiah. And one will quote it one way and another one will quote it another way. And so then what happens our young people sit there and, and, and the guy saying, listen, you people can write all the harmonies you want, but you need to recognize that, uh, that there's just simply contradictions. We need to accept it and, and go with the truth. And the end result is that 80% of our young people who are believers when they leave home and spend four years in a state university come out of that state university out of the church and have rejected Christianity. And so when we talk about converted, they need to talk about but they're losing. Obviously there has to be, there's, there's some reason for that. I know uh, the first contact I had of something that was going on uh, when my mother called me and wrote, wrote me and told my brother that he started school at Western Kentucky. I went to Freed Hardeman, put Freed Hardeman on to Lipscomb after that. And uh, in a course there on the introduction to the New Testament, the guy who pointed out to them that you really don't know who wrote most of these books And they have not been transmitted down in an accurate way. And some of these miracles have been written into it. And there's contradictions. And he was out of church. And he had all kinds of problems. Uh, He had more problems than that, but I'm saying that that's that's what he was coming in contact with. Another thing that happens as a result of, uh, look at a movie that just came out recently, The Last Temptation of Christ. That movie couldn't have come out a few years back. You know, there's a, we're doing a good job of fighting it now. I'm not getting into that. But it's it's out there. But but, but what this says, if if you see the movie, uh, which I have, not but I've read the excerpts and all from it, but if you look at that, if you look at the material that's being written and all, and you're doing it from the standpoint of a person who is, you know, a, a, a young person that is uh, going through college, and by reason of years you've only come in contact with so much information, you don't have to make a total unbeliever out of somebody to nullify him. All you have to do is put skepticism in his mind, because Jesus made such statements as, as to deny yourself, love me more than mother, father, son of duty, and the fact remains that uh, that what Jesus requires of you, you're just simply not going to do it unless you believe without any doubt in your mind. you just not. So the end result of a lot of this is not total unbelief, but we've got churches full of lukewarm people. And, and and again, just run your mind back through the various churches you've been affiliated with and you've got that 10 to 20% that are there at all the various services that they can be and who are involved and who give and do and everything like that. And you've got uh, about half of them at least that the only time you'd ever see them is Sunday morning. And they never really involve themselves and it's just, but they make their appearance on, on Sunday morning and all and it's uh, part of this, obviously, it's, it's like that if there is a heaven, and a hell, and I want to be, you know, I at least want to be, have a shot at it. And they kind of go at it in the same way that, that you might buy a chance on something that's a 10,001, you know, you may buy that chance, but you don't have a great deal of confidence about it, you know, you'll invest $2 on a 10,001 shot, now I'm talking, we're looking at, I'm using this in the same sense Jesus used his steward, I'm just steward, you know, from a worldly standpoint. In the world, outside of Christianity, I'll pay $2 on a 10000 to one shot. I'm not going to invest a couple thousand dollars on it, though. And so if somebody has doubt in your mind, you'll invest a certain amount of time to it, because it may be true, but you're not going to commit your life to it. It's going to have to be true before you're going to commit your life to it. If somebody can convince you there's a possibility, of well, oil oil in your backyard, if he, can do a, if he can present some real strong evidence, you'll invest the money to dig. But unless it's real strong, you're not going to lose all your money on some wild possibility. And so it's the, the kind of teaching and things that's going on has been, been very effective. All right, now the end result, too, of that kind of thing is one of the ways that we have always evangelized as Christians is by letting our light shine. And so that throughout, in the first century, all through the centuries, see, God's law is right. If it is from God, it's right. It's inherently right. And if you don't live that way, you suffer consequences in your life. And so, all through the centuries, one of the great evangelistic tools has been that church members living godly lives that were successful, and people out here living unsuccessful lives looking at that and saying, hey, I need what they've got. That works, and mine doesn't. And so, people would start. In fact, uh, you would have in just not too many years back in places like Grundy County people with messed up lives and all coming to church because they wanted to get it all together. But what has happened there then, with more and more lukewarm Christians, you've got more and more Christians living the same unsuccessful lives as the people in the world. So the person that we're trying to reach is looking at as much problem and as much failure within the church as he does out there, so there's no motivation. And so consequently, Christianity is becoming weaker and weaker in the United States and has for some years. the areas where Christianity is growing on a worldwide state is in places like India and Africa, behind the Iron Curtain. It's growing and it's thriving in those particular areas. In, in, in Western Europe and the United States, Christianity at the present time is just simply deteriorating. And, and I know that people may, uh, can be deceived by a lot of uh, so-called big churches or big-name preachers and things of that nature. But what I'm saying is we're not converting unbelievers. Uh, you may have somebody in a charismatic group that persuades somebody from a Baptist or Church of Christ that he can have the Spirit and, you know, he feels real good about that, you know. Or you might have uh, somebody that convinces him that, you know, you missed it on this legal point. and they go we go back and forth. But, so far as getting out of here and really converting unbelievers like he was once done, we're really not doing it. And affecting the world, we're not doing it. Now, we're protesting a lot as Christians about the things that are going on and, and, and we're trying to get involved and change our government and saying we're fighting abortion and all this kind of thing but when you look at Christianity back through the history Christianity has not changed things like abortion by getting out in the streets and throwing rocks and fighting and trying to force their belief on somebody else Christianity changed the world by converting individual people and so Paul and the early Christians lived under, under a totalitarian type government when Paul went to Corinth, when Paul went to Rome, Paul didn't tackle Caesar. Paul didn't tackle the laws of Rome and said, uh, I disagree with slavery and I disagree with this and you're going to have to change this law and we need to get a few Christians on the Senate and things like that. They just went out and started converting individual people. Well, as you convert individual people, the first thing you know is that you've converted some senators and you converted doctors and you converted lawyers and you converted writers. And so as you do this, Christianity overthrows the Roman world. And if America comes back from a Christian perspective, it won't be because we have forced what we believe is right on people that don't want it, because you're not going to do it. If prohibition taught us anything in its lack of success, is that you cannot force something on individuals that they don't want. I don't care how right it is, you simply cannot force it on people if they don't want it. the majority don't want it, they'll, they'll have what they want. So if we're going to go back, it's going to be through reaching other people. if we're going to reach other people, we're going to have to be 100% convinced ourselves. Uh, Joe is not going to give up and sacrifice anything to try and evangelize somebody for Christ. And neither are you, or neither are me, and neither is Jack or anybody else, unless you're 100% convinced. It's too easy to sit there and watch TV, or, or get involved in, in nice houses, and nice cars, and nice clothing, and all that kind of stuff. You're going to, if you're going to sacrifice a little time in front of the tube, and a few ball games, and, and and a little extra on the house, and, and drive a little lesser car, whatever it may be, and, and give up more of your time, it's going to be because you are absolutely 100% persuaded that this is so. Okay, now, if we're going to reach sin, more Christians are going to have to take the time to learn the kind of information we're going to talk about in order to to be able to reach, first of all, Christians who are coming in contact with that and don't know how to handle it. And then to reach out among those that are actually skeptical and unbelieving. And see the problem has been in getting Christians to do this. We're talking about something that takes a lot of study. A whole lot of study. And a lot of thought. And and some reading of books and all. And Christians have said back, well I believe... And, and, and the attitude has been, I don't need all of that, you know. I don't need to understand every little mechanical detail or every argument they make or know how to answer everything. I believe. I think what he's saying is silly. Like, that's the way sometimes we handle evolution. It's silly. Don't bother with it. Fine. If that's your attitude, you don't have to believe it, but you're not going to convert the guy that does. As long as you have the attitude of that silly, I'm not going to bother learning anything about it. Fine. Then you're not going to have any part. Uh, that's the opposite of somebody like John, John Clayton, who is saying, I don't believe it either. But I'm going to, in order to reach the person who does believe it, I'm going to have to understand the system well enough to explain it to him and then show him the evidence behind this over here. And that's what we're going to have dealing with the Gospels or anything like that. Now, here are some of the points that we'll note as we go through the, the four books. When anybody tells you that there are contradictions within the Bible and whatnot, Allow for the fact that there are differences in wording and things of this nature. And what you want to be able to do is to sit down and know how to reason with that individual. And first, maybe when we look at some of this, you might read a little different yourself as you go go through it. Number one, if there are, in other words, this guy's telling you there's contradictions in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, fine. I agree that everything's not said exactly the same way. But let's see what we've got here what you're saying then is we've got four separate accounts obviously we don't have one that just copied off the others and they did a very poor job of doing it so what he has told us with those contradictions is that we've got four separate accounts then he comes along he says something else he says there's a document that we call the q document that matthew mark and luke all copy problem i agree with him there is a document that runs through matthew mark and luke one time that you read a statement that is exactly word for word the same in three different documents, then obviously the only thing you can come up with is they copied off the same source. But what have you got there? You've already acknowledged Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but then you've got them each. Remember, Luke tells you in his introduction that many people had set in hand to write about this and that he had conferred with the witnesses, read the other materials, and as a historian, he's putting this down. What you now have is a... A fourth source, a fourth witness, out of the three. So you not only have the three, what you've got him to acknowledge, and say so give him credit for a few contradictions there, there's we little deal with them. But he's saying you've got three separate accounts. Three separate writers are responsible for this. But he's also said there's really a fourth writer in that they all agree on. Anytime you can have a plurality of witnesses who are doing their own individual work, And you can take and put them together and show that they complement and supplement one another. Then that's the way that you establish historical truth. Historical truth, and this is something we need to point out in the Gospels, that you cannot scientifically verify history. To scientifically verify something, you have to be able to have an experiment and do that same thing over and over again. And so you cannot approach this in the same way that you do H2O. Where you, can, where you can do the same thing over and over again. So what we do in history is we take plurality of documents from different sources and we compare them and if we find they complement and supplement one another we conclude that this cannot be the case unless they're involved in a truthful account. We do this today in a court of law. Uh, we gather witnesses and we compare the testimony of these witnesses. And if we find that all four witnesses are in agreement on a certain point, or eight or ten witnesses, or however how many, then we establish that as a point of truth. But, if those four or five or however many witnesses are in agreement on something that they say word for word exactly the same way, it no longer is evidence. Because the judge says there's no way that can happen unless they got together on the material itself. And so apparent contradictions are good because they show the individuality of the thinking. And when you can take material with apparent contradictions and show how it complements and supplements other witnesses as though that they're all individual, and yet they all complement and supplement one another, that is exactly how we verify historical truth. It's exactly how juries work and exactly how we establish truth. Now, having granted that when you're talking with a person, The next thing we point out, and every Christian ought to know this, is that Jesus spoke Aramaic. He didn't speak Hebrew. He spoke the Aramaic language. But our four Gospels are translated from the Greek. So that means that each Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have had to take words that Jesus spoke in Aramaic, and they've had to put it into Greek, and then of course we come into English. Well, if me and Steve and uh, Mark and Joe heard Jack say something in English and all of us are also fluent in French and so we each hear Joe speak for a half hour in English and so I'm going to sit down and translate what he said to French and so is Steve and so is Mark so is Joe. What do you think is going to happen? Are we going to have word for word the same speech? Are we going to have some times where where maybe even the, the subject is rearranged a little bit? Or are we gonna have a situation where maybe I put the emphasis on one thing? I might even underline it, put a big uh, exclamation point or something, and Stephen and Hop do it, or, Joe, or you put the emphasis on something else. Might we have a situation where I even uh, get the speech in such a way that, that as, as he speaks and gives his train of thought, that I might topically arrange it so I, I put everything he said about one subject together and everything he says about another subject together and everything he says about another subject together Steve might just record it from what he said beginning to end in chronological order does that happen when newspaper reporters listen to speakers today? Sure it does, you can you can read four different newspaper recorders of a, something that they're writing in English, something he said in English and unless it's just a dictum word for word thing you're going to find it arranged in different ways. You're going to find the emphasis on difference, and we're not going to say any one of those four people are lying. That they, they just simply, they're individual people. Okay. The first thing, then, we need to point out to this young person that has come in contact with this, or anybody that's studied, and as we reason with others, is that Jesus spoke in Aramaic. And the writers of the Gospels are, are translating that into Greek, and then it's coming to us in English. Obviously, There is no way that you're going to read a speech that Jesus made, and let's say Luke, and Mark, and Matthew have recorded the same speech. The only way you're going to read it in exactly the same words is if they copied off the other. So the very fact they each record the same speech, but they use some different words, and they use a different syntax, and they put their emphasis in different ways, the, the only way that, that you're going to have that is if you have the individual accounts. And so I'm saying that what you have there is a stronger witness, not a weak. Now, here's what we mean by contradiction. A contradiction is a thing where the meaning is different. And so what we want to get across into the people, there is no contradiction of meaning between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You will never find Jesus teaching something in Mark that is the opposite of something he teaches in Matthew or Luke or John. One might record and choose different words as he puts it in Greek. One may rearrange it. Matthew, for example, took the teaching of Jesus and put it in topical order. He tends to put parables together. He puts his teaching together. He puts his miracles together, and and then when he comes to the destruction of Jerusalem, the downfall of the Jewish nation, he arranges all of that material together, and so he writes in that way. Luke pursues a much more chronological order. And so stuff that is in Matthew, material that's in Matthew, in a certain section might be strung out uh, through Luke. Uh, For example, what Matthew has about the destruction of Jerusalem in the 24th chapter, in Luke he'll have some of it in the 17th chapter and some of it over here in the 21st chapter and some of it somewhere else. So those kind of things happen. That doesn't take away, it strengthens the fact that you actually have four different witnesses and and you have something that couldn't take place. In other words, what happens when somebody reads mine and Steve's and Mark's and Joe's account of what Jack has said, and each of us have recorded what Jack said exactly in the French, word for word, and exactly the same, beginning to end, and then we're gonna try to hand this uh, later on as four witnesses to what Jack said. What is the judge gonna say? He's going to say, you people got in a corner and made that up, because it is impossible for me to sit here and to write it in French and come up with what he said, and Steve, and you and him, that's impossible. So he's going to throw it out of court. He's not even going to have anything to do with it. But on the other hand, what if each of us record what he said, and there is absolutely no contradiction in the meaning, but yet there is different words, there's different syntax, there's different order. He's going to look at that, and he's saying... This kind of agreement, I can see the individuality, and this kind of agreement would be impossible, except you're recording what he said. You couldn't have that kind. And so what has been put forth as a weakness is in reality a strength, and God, remember what God did with the apostles. The apostles were witnesses. Jesus said, you will be witnesses in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. They didn't, Matthew, when he wrote, didn't need the Holy Spirit dictating what he wrote down. Matthew saw it with his own eyes. And uh, Mark, in the first century, Mark's gospel is referred to as the gospel of Peter, according to Mark. By all evidence that we had, it's the preaching of Peter recorded by Mark and put down. Peter saw it with his eyes. John saw it with his eyes. He heard it with his ears. Luke tells you he's a historian. And he's writing from all the materials and everything together at at that time. And so, these people, all they needed was discernment and honesty to write that material. That's all in the world they needed. It's just simple discernment and honesty to write the material. And they were being used as witnesses. Remember what uh, Peter said when talking about the resurrection on the Pentecost and to Cornelius? He says, and we are witnesses, speaking of the apostles. Holy Spirit wasn't dictating that. They were witnesses. They were telling what they saw. When John said, things which our eyes have seen and our hands handled concerning the word of light, nobody's dictating anything to John's mind. He's telling you the spirit of truth is responsible for one thing, and that is that the truth gets out. John's telling you exactly what he saw and exactly what he experienced, and he's putting it down. When Peter says in Acts, Now I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth God and worthy of righteousness except for with him. The Holy Spirit's not dictating that to Peter. Peter has had some experiences given to him by God. Remember the, the vision and the, the angel. The, remember the, the angel that spoke to him. The, the cloth was let down out of heaven. He was told to eat the unclean animals, etc. And Cornelius had had an experience. And he got there and Cornelius related his experience. Peter thought about his experience and Peter says hey now I perceive God is no respecter of persons and so he that that is a truthful statement but it was a perception made by Peter as a result of the information. A lot of the material about Jesus and the resurrection and all is the honest perceptions of those people who saw it. Sometimes, like John will tell you in his gospel, when they, they saw something or heard Jesus say something, they didn't understand it at the time. And then later on, they got to thinking about it, and then they understood it. Uh, remember Peter, when the cock crowed the third time, he went out and wept, because it dawned on him, it states there, it dawned on him then, what Jesus had said back there. And he all of a sudden, he began to tie it all together. He knew he would, he'd and so he went out, went out and wept. So we have now, see what I'm saying is, part of the problem with Christians, a false teaching has led by noble with noble intentions, has actually led to a lot of our young people losing their faith because they've been taught that, first of all, some of them of course almost taught that the King James Bible was dropped out of heaven, but about as bad as that is taught that that these writings are the result of the Holy Spirit just word for word dictating every single solitary word. Well then, if you believe that the Holy Spirit has dictated every single word, then what do you do with the fact that Matthew says it this way, Mark says it this way, Luke says it this way, John says it. They use different words, they use different syntax, there's a different vocabulary. Luke, for example, has a vocabulary that's far richer than Mark. Luke was a well-educated man. Mark wasn't. Luke's vocabulary is rich, Paul's vocabulary is rich, Isaiah's vocabulary is rich, Moses' vocabulary was rich. What about Moses? He was educated in all the ways in Egyptian. Isaiah was an educated man. Peter was not an educated man. Mark was not an educated man. And it shows in their writing, a much simpler vocabulary, a different type of syntax that's, that's actually involved. And so, as a result of teaching something false in the way that the Holy Spirit communicated, certain information and use people, it actually led to individuals, uh, the, the costing of their, of their faith in, in that realm. When in reality, understanding the truth doesn't weaken the Holy Spirit's involvement, it strengthens it. God knew what He was doing when He was choosing witnesses. And the Spirit of truth was responsible for what? He said, the Spirit will do what for you? He said, He will give you a remembrance of all i said god promised them you're going to remember and so the spirit of truth was responsible and then for things that jesus did not teach the holy spirit's going to take them further but for all the things that jesus taught them matthew just needed all god wanted him to do was remember it and he says, matthew i'll help you you're going to remember it and peter you're going to remember it and, and all of you people you're going to remember it and, the, and so the spirit of truth was not going to dictate every word if i have seen something with my own eyes God wants to use me as a witness, and so I can get out of here and, and express it in my own personality and all, in the prophets of the Old Testament, under the inspiration of God. The Holy Spirit is not dictating every single solitary word. They speak with their own vocabulary. They speak with their own personality. And I won't get into the, reason, the importance of this, and how important this is in, in, in dealing with those books and verifying them and all, just suffice it to say that they do it. What, the, what God would do for Isaiah is God would give Isaiah a vision. And he would, he, would see a, he would see a battle out here. And he would see all Israel scattered around the mountains in that vision, just like you'd watch something on TV or you'd have a dream. Then Isaiah would write that vision down in his own vocabulary, in his own syntax. And David would see something. The reason they were called a seer in antiquity, remember referring to Samuel as a seer, is because they, they sometimes went into a trance. And they would just actually see as God would unfold these things Till, But then they would speak it and write it down in their own vocabulary and their own and their own syntax that was involved in that process. And so because of a concept that the Holy Spirit dictated word for word for word, then when Christians that had been taught that came in contact with these various things in the state universities and all, and see the very ones that come in contact contact with it first are not people like, say, the engineers, like Steve, that's going to a secular school and majoring in engineering. He hasn't any contact with that. The first ones come in contact with it are the last ones, you'd think, the theologians. And so unbelief creeps up, first of all, in our society, not in the state university with our engineers and our scientists and things like that, but it creeps up in the theological seminaries as they begin to study these arguments, and these young people go down here to the University of the South at Sewanee and other places because they're sincere and they believe in the Lord and they believe in the Holy Spirit and they want to be a minister. And, and then they get in contact with all of this. And it flies in the face of things that they have been taught in a wrong way and they don't understand what's going on. And all of a sudden, doubt and skepticism. Charles Darwin started out as a priest, to be a priest in the Episcopal Church and in a seminary. Episcopal Seminary, Charles Darwin, became a skeptic and went into the realm of science. This man, president of the ACLU in Chattanooga, started out as an ordained elder in the Presbyterian Church. He's studied all of that material. He now is president of the ACLU in Chattanooga. Many of these people that, that are so aggressive against Christianity Started out with a religious background, and it was from that background that they read these various books and materials. Alright, then what happens is that having contacted in the theological seminaries, they go out into the churches, and something comes about called the social gospel. And and what they do, they, they no longer believe like they once did, but they do believe in the teaching of Jesus as being good and right and immoral and things like that, you know. And they do believe in God. They just think they've had a misunderstanding of so many things. They no longer think of the Bible as the word of God. So they begin to want to use the church not as an evangelistic tool to convert the world to Christ, but the church now becomes a tool to get involved in the problems of life. And so now we're, let's get out here and feed the people here, and let's feed the people here, and let's clothe the people there, and, and let's help the uh, the World Council of Churches involved in even several communist uprisings and in helping individuals, because they now are using the church as a vehicle, uh, the, the ones that believe that and all, and they're using believers, their money, but they're using it to do those things. But part of the problem was the fact that they were mistaught When they came in contact with some of the concepts they did, they simply didn't also come in contact with Christians who had the information to deal with them uh, in, in some of these areas. Okay, we have then Jesus speaking in Aramaic. We, we have uh, it then coming out in Greek and we have the individual personalities recorded in this. Another thing, and this is something interesting I didn't learn to not very long ago at all. Uh, you and I, with, whenever everybody, when they evaluate something else, you do it with the standard that you're familiar with. In our society, when we quote something, we put quotation marks around it, and if you don't quote it accurately, you're guilty of doing something wrong. And not only that, you just don't take somebody else's thoughts out there and blend it in as yours and not give credit to that. Any of us that have ever done a paper in college and all know. That even when you don't quote, if even the thought comes from somebody else, you go ahead and, and document that thought and you give full credit. Well, we go back to the Bible, and the scholars have done through the centuries, and they've had problems with, he's quoting Isaiah here, but, you know, he, he's, he's inaccurate. That's not what Isaiah really said. All the meaning is there. That's not what Isaiah really said. Number one, in antiquity, uh, in, the, in the Greek language of that day, in the Hebrew language, in the way they wrote in the first century, there was no such thing as quotation marks. It was no big deal to them. When a person quoted another individual, it was no big deal whether he said it word for word the way the other person said What they considered accurate quoting is that you represented his meaning. In fact, it's interesting to me, the very thing that some of the modern translations have been crit- criticized for in translating for the meaning when word, Because word for word sometimes does not give you the meaning. You know, what is the third hour of the day? What is the sixth hour of the day? Well, it's if you say the third hour of the day, that's literal and that's accurate. And if you know that the day begins at six o'clock in the morning, that's fine. You can figure out it's nine o'clock and the sixth hour of the day is twelve o'clock and the ninth hour of the day is three o'clock. But if you don't already know that, what is the third hour of the day? So a modern translation will not translate that literally. It'll just say 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, or 6. If you read 200 denaro, if you understand that 200 denaro in the days of Jesus was a day's wage, fine. If you don't, then what is 200 denaro? So some of the modern translations will say a day's wage. It's not literal, but it's accurate. You know, in the same vein that some of our modern translations do that in conveying the meaning, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Apostle Paul, the Hebrew writer, when they were quoting from the Old Testament prophecies, they weren't concerned about being verbatim. And in fact, all indication is that many times that they were quoting it in the same way I do when I preach, that I read some verses and I quote some verses. Well, I guarantee you when I quote them, they're not all word for word. I'm concerned about the meaning, and to the best of my ability, I'll have them them word for word. But the big thing I'm concerned with is the meaning, and I know you can go back and check me anytime you want to. Well, see, when the Hebrew writer writes, and he quotes from Isaiah or whatnot, he knows they can go back and check every bit of that. What he's concerned about is the meaning. So, consequently, when they quote, you're not going to... Paul, for example, (laughs) is very interesting... When he quotes from like the Hebrew manuscripts, or if he quotes from the Greek Septuagint, if there's a mistake in the the manuscript, Paul will correct it. Paul was a scholar himself. Now the Hebrew writer, when he quoted from the Greek Septuagint, he gave it just the way it said. Be like somebody quoting the King James Bible, give it the way he said as opposed to somebody quoting the King James and in his mind saying well supper means to permit and so i'm going to put permit there charity means love and so i'm going to put love there and so he goes ahead and puts those words in there well that's what paul does when he quotes from the greek septuagint if there's a mistake there or a wor- another word that he thinks is more appropriate he puts it there and he didn't feel obligated to explain that in any way and there's no quotes or anything like that because in their, in the way that they thought in the way they did their reasoning that is the way that they quote they it. Didn't, they didn't have to quote word for word, they didn't use quotation marks, and they could go ahead and quote that very thing, and the important thing was that they have the meaning. So, if somebody says there's contradictions on the quotations of the prophecies and things of that nature, if he's talking about words not being exactly the same, sure, big deal. But if he's saying that there's contradiction of meaning, there's not. And so one writer might quote a certain passage in Isaiah And use different words than another writer but they're using exactly the same meaning and they think completely different than we do with quotations. So I'm saying that some of the criticism of the Bible by those who criticized it in the past century came about as a result of their own ignorance of methods of writing and communicating it all in the first century but, it, but it, the interesting thing to me is that what is bad turned out to be something good. It is that body of material that has motivated Christian scholars to go back and become fanatics in the field of archaeology and studying old manuscripts and things like that. And so now we've learned all of these things. We didn't know this in the past century. There are harmonies of the Gospels written several hundred years back that wouldn't even be written now because we know so much more. So, what I'm saying is the very criticism that was so detrimental in the minds of some as a result of motivating devout Christians to go back and examine the materials has turned out to be something great so far as the Bible. And the end result is that we are developing all the time a better understanding. And a Christian today that understands this and is willing to study the Gospels can do a better job than any Christian all through the centuries in taking Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John and harmonizing it and getting the meaning out of it, and actually presenting it in such a way that you can show a person that this could not exist in that way, except that you're actually dealing with truth itself. Okay, what I'm going to do is, is uh, go ahead and pause for tonight on this, anything I've said, then we're open for, you know, any comments or statements or anything like that, and then next week we'll go ahead with this line of thought on the reliability of Gospels, and then it'll take, it'll take one more week this, and then after that, we'll get into the actual gospels, and we'll take the parables and the miracles and compare them and show them how they're different, but how they can be reconciled with the very type of information that we that we've got right now. Okay. One thing I noticed from from reading those books is that by the time you got through reading one and you read another one, you'd read the same thing that you read in the first one, you know, in subject, you in subject matter, time? you know. Sure. You were reading about the same event. Right, they were right. just, they were saying the same thing. Yeah, just but rep- repetition. you check them very carefully, you find a, a number of times they are saying it with different words, different syntax, yeah, but I wasn't looking at that. Right. All I See, was, subconsciously, I was noticing it, it's the same story. Sure. Over, In fact, over. what you experienced, Joe, is the reason that the average person through the centuries hasn't had has even picked up on this yeah. because the meaning is exactly the same. Right. And since the meaning was the same, those little minute differences, the person didn't even pick up on, or it was no big thing. But then, with the printing press, and with the making of books and all, there came the the ability that they didn't even have in St. past. In other words, we can actually go through and and put these teachings side by side, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right down there, and so you can just look at this miracle is recorded by Matthew, this is by John and all, very easily. Well, when you look at that, then you notice the different words and the arrangements, and the way a certain part has been changed or something like that, and that is the thing that they're pointing out is contradiction, the type thing that the average person in just, say, reading Matthew, and, uh, you know, so many chapters a day, and then reading Mark and all, would have not even picked up on, except that he actually saw them side by side, and then they, and then they would. And a lot of the sophisticated tools that we've got have led to of some of the things that we've talked about. But in the long run, the interesting thing to me is that it has the potential to be something that is good. The very, the very methods of criticism that they use are good and they actually expose some of the fallacies of the way Christians have taught various things down through the years. And if we can get enough Christians that are actually studious in the material itself and know how to handle it, I'm saying that there's a lot of people out there that can actually be reached. And we've got, though, in our churches, we've got all kinds of young people coming up and they're not being taught any of this. They don't have the understanding. And then what happens? They go to a university where they begin to point out the contradictions and various other shortcomings and deficiencies that they point out and because they haven't had contact or anything like that they go by the wayside so far as their faith is concerned and and in the churches i believe you can go right up here i know on the mountain or the town or any place you want tomorrow morning and you'll find this they'll find they'll deal with that same material over and over again they will never reach any level of depth and even in the bible classes there are very few of them that will have, in other words, that, that you should have adult classes in the churches that did that after you've gone through Galatians umpteen times, you ought to be able to go through it. There is nothing wrong with taking the time to do the research and go through it in a more in-depth way. And where we're falling down is that in our adult classes with people that have been Christians a number of years, they ought to be studying this type of material that we're talking about tonight. And the mature people ought to be studying and learning that And then as people are reached out here, you need to have people in the congregation that can handle those questions and know how to reason in in that realm. That we often speak of the infidel as some ungodly reprobate out here, and he's not. Uh, Many of those unbelievers are very sincere, conscientious, decent, honest people whose decision is based on the, inf- the best information that they have in their mind, that your mind can't think any better than the information it has in it. And so if you've been fed that, and your thinking is in that realm, then it, it would be only natural you'd feel that way. And then so you tie all of that in when they hear all of this stuff. You tie that in with a, they flip on TV, and there's Jimmy Swagger, representing Christianity and performing miracles and everything like that and all the time he's performing miracles and he's, he's doing, this, doing this other. Or you got Oral Roberts doing the things, or Jim and Tammy, and, and then they see all of that and, and they Tammy read about some Tammy. of the other scandals and it just looks like nonsense to them. You know, it, it does.